Good morning. Good morning. Father, help me this morning to share this word that you've given me. May it touch all of our hearts today. Remind us of your grace. Amen. Some of the most insightful secular writers of our time have pointed out that a lot of our drive in life and a lot of our acts and dysfunction goes back to a fear that we're not accepted. The famous playwright Arthur Miller, who wrote Death of the Salesman, stopped believing in God as a teenager, but decades later he said this, I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. I could not escape it. I still felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have somebody tell me that I was okay, that I was acceptable, that I was approved of. He had replaced the God of Christmas with the God of audience approval. He was still looking for someone to tell him that he was accepted and not under judgment. And he never quite found it. Madonna said this in Vanity Fair magazine. All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. How do we try to find acceptance? Performance. That's how the world sees us, how we perform. If I can do enough, have enough, be enough, achieve enough, I'll be accepted. If I know the right people, live in the right area, have the right kind of job, have the right stuff, I'll be okay. People will want to be my friends, people will respect me. It depends where we grew up and the kind of family that we have as to what we believe is required. Maybe we have to be tough enough to be respected. Maybe you have to be clever. Maybe you have to wear the right clothes. Maybe you have to be good at sport. Maybe you have to be seen in the right places and with the right people. In her book, Imperfect, The Gifts of Imperfection, Brené Brown describes this problem of not having enough and not being enough. She says, we spend many of, our, of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough weekends. And of course, we don't have enough money, ever. We're not thin enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough, or fit enough or educated, or successful enough, or rich enough, ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. By the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with the litany of what we didn't get, or didn't get done that day. We all have different conditioning, that tells us what's required to be accepted by our community. 
We all have that need deep down inside to be accepted, to be secure and welcomed as part of a family or a community. It seems that deep down, everyone, no matter how outwardly successful, feels like a nobody, as we were singing this morning. A nobody who has a need to be somebody, a need for significance and acceptance. Karen Ed has a spark in her, a look, a bounce in her step, a light in her eyes. She's one of 57 children in the Haitian orphanage, all dark-skinned, bright-eyed, curly-haired, Creole-speaking and fun-loving. Each one is precious, but this seven-year-old stands out from the others. Not as a result of special treatment, she eats the same rice and beans as the others, plays on the same grassless playground, she sleeps beneath the same tin roof as the other girls, hearing the night, nearly nightly pound of rain. Her routine is identical to the other children's, yet she's different. The reason? Ask her. Ask Karenette about the visitors who travelled from a faraway world just to see her. They were looking for a girl, a little girl, a girl just like her. They knew her name. They knew her favourite song. They knew that she loves to look at books and jump rope. And in a moment, that changed her forever. They invited her to live with them. They're coming for me, she'll tell you. Ask to see the pictures of her soon-to-be home. She'll show them to you. Fail to ask, she'll offer to show them to you. Her adoptive parents brought her pictures, a teddy bear, granola bars and cookies. She shared the cookies with her friends and asked the director to guard her bear, but she keeps the pictures. They remind her of the father who knows her. They remind her of the home that awaits her. The photographs convince her to believe the incredible. Somebody knows her name and promised to take her home. As a result, Karenette is different. She still lives in the same orphanage, plays on the same playground, eats in the same cafeteria. But her world changed the day she learned that someone far away knows her name and is coming for her. In God's upside down kingdom, Jesus has made things different for those who choose to be part of it. We're accepted, adopted, loved, not because we deserve it, not because of our performance, but by his grace. You are enough. Not because you perform, but because Jesus paid the price to cover your sin and make you his child. A holy and perfect God wanted you in his family so much that he made the way for you to be enough simply by accepting his gift. The almighty and all-knowing God has set his affection on you. Every detail about you he knows. Your interests, your hang-ups, your fears and failures. He knows you. When we become a Christian, we still live in the same house and wear the same clothes and eat the same food, but we're different. 
who'd been adopted into the king's family. Max Licato, who told Karenette's story, continues on, I came to know the story of this little orphan, not by travelling to Haiti, but by standing in the church foyer. I'm a pastor like other pastors. I like to greet people after church. And like other pastors, I'm a captive audience for parents and grandparents who want to show off the new additions to their family. Dan wanted to show me the photo of his new daughter. The girl in the photo smiled a big smile, wore a pink ribbon, and had skin the colour of chocolate. The guy who handed me the photo smiled a big smile, wore cowboy, cowboy boots and a hat, and had skin the colour of Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> daughter? Then when I heard about the orphanage, the trip, and the decision to expand their family by adding one more face around the table, he scarcely took a breath for the next five minutes, telling me all about her hair, eyes, favourite colour, song and book. He couldn't stop talking about her. He was crazy about her. Might you believe the same of your Heavenly Father? This is the ever-recurring, soul-lifting message of heaven. The Lord delights in you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I have written your name on the palms of my hands. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. He regards you as the apple of his eye. He can sympathise with our weaknesses. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, King David wrote, you knew my path. Okay, so the Bible tells me that I'm a child of God. He loves me, accepts me, delights in me, and I respond to that. I love him and I'm grateful and I want to please him. But then I mess up. I fail him. I don't want to, but I do. And I feel guilty. And when I feel guilty, I either retreat or defend, depending on the circumstances. Personally, I prefer to retreat. If I avoid everything long enough, it will just go away. I don't like conflict. And I don't find apologising easy. My should gets in the way. I should be better. Do better. I should be able to whatever is required. But if pressed, I could turn to defence. You do that too. You're no better. You're just as much to blame. <laughs> the enemy then takes my guilt and shame and says, Aha! God must be disappointed in you as well. Better keep away from him or he'll reject you. Of course, this is kept as a subtle suggestion so that I just have a vague, uncomfortable feeling. If it's too blatant, I might remember what the scriptures say and that will spoil his plan. So what can we do about guilt? An article in the Washington Times in 2004 tells about an unusual hotline. The apologies come in mostly late at night 
when people are alone with their thoughts. I'm sorry I turned my back on true love, says one man. I'm sorry for having an affair with a married man, a woman says. Others apologising for stealing or lying. One sad voice says, I'm sorry I was ever born. These are the callers to an apology hotline, a college student's effort to offer solace to troubled souls unable or unwilling to unburden their conscience in person. Jesse Jacobs has made it possible to apologise without actually talking to the person you've wronged. Jacobs created an apology hotline. People unable or unwilling to unburden their conscience in person call the hotline and leave a message of apology on an answering machine. Each week, 30 to 50 calls are logged as people apologise for things from adultery to embezzlement. Maybe we need an apology hotline. In another New York Times article headlined, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, David Brooks says, Religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility, and responsibility leads to guilt. You and I see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we inwardly know that we're not doing enough. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organisation, it can never be as much as I could have given. Just I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. And yet we no longer have a clear framework or a set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. <coughs> Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin have no longer a sense that they live in a universe marked by divine mercy, grace and forgiveness. There is sin but no formula for redemption. Guilt is something that everyone has to deal with. There is sin. No one can deny the presence of sin in the world. We instinctively know that sin has to be paid for. If someone were to murder your child and there was no punishment given, where would be the justice? God said right from the beginning there would be consequences to sin. We all know that wrongdoing must have consequences. As a human race, we all try to minimise our own sin, to justify our failings, compare ourselves to others who seem much worse than us. 
Some try to explain the evil men do to one another with the evolutionary theory of survival of the fittest. Some explain it with the idea of karma. You reap what you sow. Some just believe that good and bad are the balancing influences of this world, yin and yang. We just have to accept them both to deal with our guilt. Modern psychology urges us to think positive. Just don't accept those negative thoughts. Push them away and don't believe them. Tell yourself you're okay often enough and you'll gradually convince yourself that you're okay. What can we do with guilt and shame? In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, he's already dealt with it. He's already forgiven me and you. Jesus paid the price and bought that forgiveness 2,000 years ago. How many sins have you committed then? He dealt with our guilt even before we'd done anything. Before we'd done anything wrong. That's how it works in his upside down kingdom. He has the answer before we even ask the question. He makes us righteous children, accepts us, and then we can please him. Not we please him, so accepts us. It's not like the football team, where if you don't perform, you're out. He makes us perform. <laughs> he, we perform because he's already accepted us and said, you're in. Most of our mess-ups happen because we forget that we're, we are accepted. We go back to the shoulds and the have-tos. We go back to the, I'm not good enough. Don't have enough. We fear not being accepted, not being valued. I don't speak up or I'm economical with the truth because I fear rejection. I take offence because I feel you don't value me, my efforts, my opinions. We go back to trying to find acceptance from other people. If I admit my mistakes, they'll think less of me, they'll criticise me, they'll reject me. We don't have to try to be enough for ourselves, for others, for God. The great creator, almighty God, has accepted you. He says you are enough. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no blame, no judgment. Grace, beautiful grace. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, If by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, that's the one man, Adam, who sinned and brought death into the world, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? Paul is talking about a gift of righteousness, a free gift. One of Alex's favourite verses, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a gift. What a swap. A gift isn't something we earn or deserve. It's a gift. It's not like some gifts that are required. You know, 
And cousin, that you don't really like getting married and you feel obliged to bring a gift. Not that kind of gift. God wasn't obliged. He didn't say, oh well, I made these people, they messed up, so I better do something, I suppose. Better rescue them. God really, really wanted us to have this gift. He really, really wanted us to be made righteous so that we could fellowship with him. We can never be good enough, perform well enough, that we don't need grace. Grace is the only way to be enough to stand before a holy God. We're designed to be dependent on the grace and the power of God. Apart from him, we can't do anything. Apart from him, we can never be enough. But in him, we're always enough. Sometimes we sing amazing grace, but we live as though we're singing, God let me be so amazing that I don't need grace. In Jesus' upside down kingdom, it's only as we surrender to our need for grace that we find freedom from guilt and shame. It's only as we daily surrender to our need for God's grace that we find freedom from guilt and shame. He wanted you in his family so much that he was willing to pay with his life so he could adopt you. He paid the adoption fees. He came to make all the arrangements ahead of time for your adoption. He knows about the pain and suffering of life. He lived it. He understands that there must be punishment for sin. He's a just God as well as a loving God. So he took my punishment and your punishment so that we can always stand before him knowing that we're precious to him, that we are enough. Knowing that he knows all about us, our failures and foibles, our good days and bad days. But like Karenette's new dad, he's delighted to have us in his family. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you've adopted us. Thank you for your grace. It's just so wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Amen.